We are in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Um, if you have a Bible, open to Acts chapter 9. If you have an app, open to Acts chapter 9. If you have a phone and you don't have an app, just type in Acts chapter 9 and it'll get you in the right place. If you want a, a hard copy of the Bible and you don't have one, uh, we want to give one to you as a gift. Just head over to the bookstore, which is right across this lawn out here to the west. Walk to the west side of the commons. There's a bookstore there, and we will hand you a hard copy of the Bible. But let me be honest. If you're one of those people that has like 12 of them at home, don't go get one of these. Just open one of the ones you have at home. So um, Acts chapter 9, uh, we are teaching through the book of Acts in all of our redemption congregations. Uh, we teach most of the year just through books of the Bible and believe that the Word of God really has power and will speak to us as we move through it. So we're believing that today. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 9, verses 31 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 42. So let's... Uh, just get started. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, this is an interesting statement. You can just go backwards. This is an interesting statement. So the church throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. When you hear that terminology, if you follow it in the book of Acts, and I don't expect that anybody in this room has memorized the book of Acts, but the book of Acts follows a trajectory that was set out in Acts 1.8. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is speaking, the resurrected Christ is speaking to the disciples who are surrounding them, and he said, you need to wait for when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it'll come upon you in power. Here's what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We'll leave that verse there. This passage in verse 31 says the church throughout all of Judea, Galilee, and Samaria... So if you're reading the Bible, what you begin to understand is it's been concentrated primarily in Jerusalem, and at this point it begins to move to fulfill this verse, as will the rest of the book of Acts. We'll see the gospel begins to go forth. So we'll see right now Peter begin to move into Judea in a place called Lydda. And then he moves into Joppa, which is moving towards Samaria. And then you'll begin to see, well, in the rest of this section, as we play out in chapter 10, now it's going to people who aren't just Jews, but also to Gentiles. Well, that was the promise of Acts 1.8. But the question is, how does it happen? Well, from this passage, it happens from the Holy Spirit, and it happens from witnesses. Do you ever, when you sit in a room like this, go, how in the world did I get here? Do you ever have those moments? You may have them in multiple different places. Like, how did I live in this place? How did I be? But we're sitting in a church. Like, how did I get here? I have to be honest with you. I ask myself that question probably too much. Um, and not in like this cynical way, which is fine if you're in this room going, how did I get here? I hate this. That's, I, I get it. I totally get it. Um, but just this sense of like, how did I get here? I didn't grow up in a Christian family and I didn't grow up in the church. 
I came to Arizona uh, to go to Arizona State University and made, had zero God in my decision, though uh, God had encountered me and I encountered God late in high school and I went through this recruiting process because I ended up playing baseball at ASU. But my decision to go to ASU had zero, from a human perspective, God in it. I had come to know Jesus, but I chose ASU because it was a great baseball program and they were offering me an opportunity to play there. I now look back on that and go, if somebody had told me then, you're going to go and stay in Arizona and be a pastor, I promise you, I would have gone, what are my other options? Like, Muskogee, Oklahoma, I'm going. Like, I am not going to be a pastor. And it wasn't that I had been a church kid and therefore I didn't like pastors or didn't like church. I hadn't been in church. I was just like, that would be so weird and obscure. It would be like somebody saying to me at that time, you're going to be an astronaut. Like, you're nuts. I have no idea. So I look back now and go, I'm in Arizona 20 plus years and I'm a pastor. How did this happen? Well, one thing I know the way it happened is it happened through the Spirit of God encountering me, but through other people. Redemption Gilbert's had this line forever that said this, changed lives, change lives. Changed lives, change lives. And you're going to see that today, that changed lives of individuals change other people's lives. That was true with me. That's what it is to be a witness. The Spirit of God had come upon a people and they began to be witnesses in both senses of the term witness. Here's what I mean by both senses. On one level, a witness is a witness just based upon who they are, the way they live their lives. These people encounter Jesus, the Spirit comes upon them, and they just begin to do the stuff. They just begin to go, okay, Jesus, you said to do this, and we're going to do it. You told us to love our neighbors as ourselves, so when we see them in need, we're going to love them. And if you follow the history of the church in the book of Acts and in historical development of church history, you'll see people saying many folks were coming to faith based upon the simple but also sacrificial ways in which they were loving the needy, loving their neighbors, and loving people. Christians begin to understand that if Jesus is the Lord of the universe and he made all this stuff, He made us with the ability to make all this stuff and to do all this stuff. If he's Lord, then we bring all of our lives to him as an offering. So Paul tells us as Christians, whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. This plays out in such a way that whether I'm changing diapers or I'm working a job, right? A job where I go and get a paycheck for it. Whether I'm in recreation at a moment, or I'm in my labor, whether I swing a baseball bat or swing an axe, whether I draw the next building or I paint a next piece of art. Whatever it is, whether I hold a jackhammer or I hold a pencil and a ruler because I'm a teacher, I'm supposed to live all of my life for Jesus. All of life is all for Jesus. And when we do it, we offer it to God vertically in worship, and to our neighbors in witness. And this early church was doing this. We see that. That's this statement in verse 31 that the church throughout all of Judea, Galilee, Samaria had peace and was being built up. They were walking in the fear of the Lord. That's what that means. Just walking in the fear of the Lord just means obedience. And obedience can be this really heavy weight to way too many of us. But all it means is this. 
A disciple is just one who hears God through Jesus and does what he says. So when you hear God's word and it says to do this, you go, I don't need to change the world. I just need to do that. And it doesn't mean that's always easy, but you're saying, God, with your help. So this church was doing it. They were walking in the fear of the Lord, simply obeying and displaying that type of witness. The other side of witness is what a witness does in that they testify. Things started happening. People started going, why do you live these lives? Miraculous things are happening. And people are going, what is that? And they speak, they testify, Jesus. This Jesus whom you crucified, God is raised from the dead. And they were proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus amongst the dead. But they were always together, both promoting in their lives and proclaiming the gospel. They were living their lives in such a way, like First Peter says, when Peter says, always be prepared to give an account for the hope that lies within you. That's presuming you're living a promotional life of Jesus. You're promoting Jesus in everything you do that people would ask, and then you would be prepared. What is that? And you'd be prepared to give an account for the hope that lives within you. It's Jesus. That's what's happening. That's how the church is multiplying. The church is multiplying through its witness in promoting and in proclaiming the gospel. So they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. That word comfort of the Holy Spirit is a very unique one in that it can play out multiple meanings. One is like you're very much proclaiming it, you're living it, you're living in the joy of it. Bottom line is they're filled with the Spirit. What Acts 1-8 said is they have had the Spirit come upon them, they're walking in the ways of God, they're living in the Spirit, and the church is being multiplied. The Spirit precedes the church. The Spirit doesn't follow the church. The Spirit of God is God and therefore sovereign, therefore unbound. He doesn't go where we go. We're meant to go where He goes. So I don't know how, but the Spirit of God moves Peter. Now, Peter, we've heard all about Paul, and now it's like, well, on the other hand, Peter, as Peter went here and there among them all, verse 32, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, what's about to happen, if you look at the headings of your Bible, is two healings happen. The healing of a paralyzed man who'd been bedridden for eight years, and the healing of a woman who had been very active in charity had fallen ill and died, and she's resurrected. We've titled this sermon, Signs of the Kingdom. So it's important for us to understand what a sign is. A couple, um, handful of years ago, uh, my wife and I decided to take up a tradition that her parents had done with her, and we woke our boys up early one morning. We said, get ready. Um, ready for what? It's too early. We don't need to go to school yet. Get ready. You're not going to school. Not going to school? What? Just get ready. Come on. Well, what are, what are we doing? Where are we going? Why? What, what's happening? Just be quiet. Get ready. So they get ready. We put them in a car. We drive. Where are we going? Just wait. We drive. We begin to move in. Planes are flying overhead. What are we doing? We're at an airport. What? what airport? What is it? It's a big building with planes, right? Like, so let's go. We're going, why are we going to the airport? They don't know anything. We go through security. They look at the tickets. Burbank, where's Burbank? It says CA. What's CA? California. Why Burbank, California? Just go, right? We're going to Burbank. Where's Burbank, California? Northern or Southern California? Good geography, son. Don't worry about it. Southern California. 
Why are we going to Southern California? Be quiet, just go, right? So we're flying. I like a plane. Where are we going? Why are we going, right? We get into a rental car. We begin to drive. Where are we going? Hey, have you gotten the drift yet, kids? We're not telling you. Just be quiet. So we drive in a rental car from the Burbank Airport. We turn a few times on some highways. All of a sudden, we turn a corner. There's a huge sign, Disneyland. Tim told you an illustration like this. I just have a real story to go along with it. So Disneyland. So there's people pulling over in the midst of it. They're getting out. They're taking pictures. The boys are like, we want a picture in front of Mickey, the Mickey ears. So we're standing in picture, picture, picture. Now at that moment, if they go, this is awesome. We love this. Thanks so much. Let's go home. You'd either want to slap your kids because they might be having a fit at that moment, or you'd go, wait, 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 I need to redirect this. This big sign here, it's just an advertisement. It's a pointer. It's pointing to the point of what you're about to experience in Disneyland. It's pointing somewhere. When you see a sign in the Bible or in real life, a miracle, a wonder, if you will, it's never for the wonder itself. It's always to point to a reality, which is the kingdom. Now, let's define that for a minute. What does a kingdom have to have? Come on, participate with me for a minute. What's, a king, right? Has to have a king. A king has to have what? A land, something he is king of. And then there's subjects. So three aspects that a kingdom has to have. A king, a place, a land, if you will, and subjects or citizens of that kingdom. When Jesus comes in in the Gospels, and one of the first things he says is, the kingdom of God is at hand, what he's saying is what you just sang. The Lord of Lords is here. The King of Kings is here. The one whom Colossians says, by him, through Christ, all things were created. By him and for him. Everything we can see and all the things we can't see were made by Jesus and for Jesus. So he comes into a world and he goes, this is mine, but it's gone astray. It's not all as it should be. And I'm going to bring my kingship, my lordship to that which is wrong. Tim Keller says this about signs, wonders, and miracles of Jesus. He says, miracles lead not simply to cognitive belief but to worship, to whole life allegiance, to awe, wonder. Jesus' miracles in particular. Now stop. You're going to go, but the miracles we're about to see weren't Jesus' miracles. They're Peter's. But the author of the book of Acts that we're in begins the whole book by saying, I'm writing to you, Theophilus. In my first book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. But now I'm writing, what's his implication? About all that Jesus continues to do and teach. So the miracles we'll see today, and we'll point this out, are every bit as much Jesus' miracles as the miracles Jesus did in the Gospels. Jesus' miracles in particular were never magic tricks. They aren't designed only to impress and coerce. Instead, he used miraculous power to heal the sick, to feed the hungry, to raise the dead. We're going to see that today. Why? We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order, right? We live in the natural order and we go, it just is what it is. 
This is just the way of life. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes, you're right, this is life, and this is the world I made, but this isn't the life that I designed, and I'm going to display for you the life I designed. And when he performs a miracle, a sign, or a wonder, it isn't the suspension of the natural order, it's the restoration of the natural order. Let me show you the way it's supposed to be. Let me tell you this, whoever you are sitting in this room, wherever you are on a faith journey, even if you're in here and you're going, I don't think I have any faith at all, what you do have is something deep inside you that knows, knows, knows that life is not the way it's supposed to be. You can read your news app and go, that's not the way it's supposed to be. You can live your life any given day and there's multiple moments where you're like, something just isn't right. Let me just say this, even if you have no faith, you're right. That sentiment is right. Jesus knew that and it's what motivated him to come in and not suspend natural order but to display for us, let me tell you what life really is. Let me show you and display for you the way in which human life was meant to ultimately exist. And let me show you God who cares about you when you're sick, who cares about you when you're lonely, who cares about you even when you're dead. Now, Peter went here and there among them all, and he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas. This is the thing I absolutely love about the Bible. The Bible communicates that Jesus comes into the world that he created. All things were created by him and for him. He spoke the world in existence. Jesus sustains the world by the word of his power. He's restoring the world. The work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection is to restore all of that which is lost in the fall because of human beings' disobedience because of the lies of this outsider, the enemy. And Jesus says, I am coming to restore it all. It's cosmic. And I'm going to save a people, and they're global people, and there's thousands and millions of them that I'm saving. But then he narrows in, and time and time again, he goes, but I care about Aeneas. The God who made the world sustains the world, who is restoring the totality of the world that he made, says, I care about you. Not just Aeneas. That's what we see is this is the God. God. Like, it's God, God. Like, capital G, capital O, capital D, Aeneas. Tyler. Matt. Danielle. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Aeneas. He found a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed. Folks, that means there was a moment when Aeneas was not paralyzed. That means Aeneas can vividly remember, vividly, vividly remember what it was like to be able-bodied. Eight years bedridden. That means he spent eight years missing things many of us don't even think about. What it feels like to have ground underneath your feet. What it feels like to be able to raise up on my tippy toes. What it feels like to walk. 
what it feels like to move. Therefore, what it feels like to work. But even deeper than that, what it feels like to be known. Because anybody that's been bedridden for eight years and paralyzed had a moment where when they became paralyzed, all the family and all the friends came around them. But over a period of time, life happens. Those people have their own cares, their own concerns, their own tragedies. And now after eight years, there's very few people that are likely still sitting with Aeneas. So this isn't just a physical problem, but it's become a deeply emotional problem. This is a man who psychologically has to deal with what it was like to know how to move, who probably feels his limbs at times still feel like they're moving because his memory and his brain is so powerful it's triggering those things and yet he can't do it. A man who once had many people he was around all the time is now deeply, deeply lonely because of his paralysis. All the emotions that that brings up of being utterly meaningless. People don't even probably know I'm alive anymore. Aeneas likely thought over and over and over again. Why don't I just die? It would be better to be dead than to just sit in this bed. You know that's true. Now let me say something. Two things. One is when you read the Bible, let it be real. These are real stories. These are real people. This is a short section. But this man's life felt all of the things you would feel if you went into paralysis. But here's the other part. He's feeling things that even with you, if you are able-bodied, you feel as well. There are major parts of many of our lives that we feel are paralyzed. Some of you feel deeply paralyzed spiritually. God seems distant. He seems silent. He seems like he's not coming through. He feels like he hasn't answered prayers that you've shot up and you're sick of it. And you're quiet. There's many of you that experience loneliness every bit as much as Aeneas does. Even though you're in a room with thousands of people, you feel like nobody notices you. No one has an idea if you're dead or if you're alive. There's people in here who work day in and day out, but you utterly feel meaningless. Like this feels like it has absolutely no meaning. This story is not lost on you. The Spirit of God sends Peter because God is one who hears the cries of the oppressed even if they have gotten to a point where they can't even articulate it because they're so fed up and it's never come through for them. God still hears. Peter finds a man named Aeneas bedridden for eight years who was paralyzed and Peter says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise. Now, folks, (laughs) that's a really short statement. But I got to ask you this first off, especially when we begin to talk about healing. Who heals Aeneas? Not Peter. Peter said this in the beginning of the book of Acts when he sees that man um, that's kind of paralyzed and he's a, he's a kind of a limp paralytic. Um, he says, silver and gold I don't have. But I offer you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Let me just warn you and say this. If you're ever around people that talk healing a lot, but they talk about themselves and their ministries a lot and not a lot about Jesus, run. Get away. Because let me tell you, there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. There is no one who literally can bring about lame limbs and bring them to life 
who can bring sight to the blind, can make a mute talk, can set captives free, but the name of Jesus. Peter knows that. And that is worthy. He says, Jesus Christ heals you, rise. And then look at what he says, and make your bed. Now, there has never been an appeal to make your bed that was so immediately obeyed. <laughs> and he, make my bed. He, I got to make my bed. He gets up. He feels things in his fingers. He feels them in his limbs. He rises and he makes that bed as crisp and clean as you could possibly imagine. And he is thrilled with jubilation that he could make his bed. Not that he could dunk a basketball. He probably still couldn't. He could make his bed, and it was miraculous. It then says, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Folks, he ran out and went, I made my bed! Right? He's been bedridden for eight years. There's people who don't know him from a post, and they're like, this guy's a nut job. Right? He's coming out screaming in joy that he made his bed. But the folks who did know him went, oh my God, what happened? Aeneas made his bed. Made his bed. That's Aeneas walking. That's Aeneas jumping. That's Aeneas moving. That was Aeneas that made his bed. And many came to faith. Signs and wonders are never ends in and of themselves. They always point to a deeper, more fruitful reality that has a name and it's personified and it's Jesus. And when people encounter Jesus, they're floored. And many believe. I love stories like that because God meets us like this in many forms and many fashions. He'll meet you in your loneliness like this. He'll hear you when you even can't even cry if you believe. Spirit, Paul tells us, prays for us even when we don't know how to pray. God is a God who hears the cries of the oppressed. But there's a part of that passage I don't like. And every time we've taught the Gospels, and every time I've gone home after a miraculous passage in Acts, my wife will say something like this. Why didn't he heal my mom? This October, six years ago, my wife lost her mom to terminal cancer. My kids will look at pictures and go, Nana, right? And they'll hear stories like this and go, why not my mom? You have your story. You might be sitting here right now going, well, why not me? He did it for Aeneas. Why doesn't he do it for me? And you might be saying that in the midst of depression or the midst of anxiety, or the midst of loneliness, or the midst of a horrific marriage, or the midst of a broken marriage, or you fill in the gap, why not me? Or physical pain. Most often what I'll say to my wife is, I don't know. But in some of our best moments, we'll remind ourselves of John chapter 11. John chapter 11 is such a powerful passage because Mary and Martha's brother falls ill, this man who it says Jesus loved Lazarus. Jesus loved them. Mary and Martha, he falls ill, so they call and they send for Jesus. They say the one that you loved is ill. Later in the passage, it says, and Jesus loved Mary and he loved Martha. 
but he waits. Lazarus dies, dead. He's in a tomb for four days. He's dead. Jesus then comes on the scene. Mary stays at the house with Lazarus' body. Martha goes out and she is peeved. Jesus, if you would have come. Tons of you feel like this. Some of you feel like this even in the midst. If God were real, he would have. And many of you are like, I believe God's real and you're mad. Why didn't you show up, God? Why them, not me? Here's one thing they did right that is a huge, 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 huge lesson for us, Redemption Gilbert. They sent for Jesus. In just a minute, you're going to see another healing where they send for Peter. And they're sending for Peter because he has the power of the Holy Spirit who came as the Spirit of Christ. They knew we have no other hope. After last hour, I had a man pray for me. He said, I can't do it. Like, I've got this situation. I can't figure this out. He's calling. He's pleading for Jesus. They sent for him. James is very clear that we do not see things like this happen because we don't ask. You can't get angry at God if we've not employed the means that he said he would use. Ask, seek, knock, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Ask. Fundamentally, they send for Jesus, he comes. Now, in this moment, Martha's angry with him, and he says, your brother will not be dead forever. She goes, I know that in the end, at the resurrection of the dead, he will rise, but what about now? Now, Jesus is preparing to raise him from the dead now, but Jesus goes, let me correct you, Martha, and he makes this statement, and this is so massive for my wife and I to remind ourselves of, remind our kids, and for you to be reminded of. And here's what Jesus said to her. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Let me tell you something. Lazarus was raised from the dead and died again. My mother-in-law Susan never got rose from the dead in the here and now, but she believed. What is Jesus saying? Even though she dies, she lives because of her belief in me, because I'm the resurrection and the life. Here's what that means. Your healing's coming. The question is when, if you believe. If you believe, your healing's coming. May we never be a people that don't think it can come in the here and now because it comes in the here and now time and time again. I mean, for God's sake, you're in the room because it's come in the here and now. If you believe, you believe because God took a dead heart and made you alive. If he can do that, don't ever say God's too busy for me or he'd never want to meet me in the midst of my partial paralysis, in the midst of my broken marriage, in the midst of my loneliness. God forbid we say that. We are called to be a people in the midst of pain, suffering, and death who plead to God because he can do it, who plead to God because he has done it. We ask because he's a giving God. We ask because he said ask. We ask because he's generous. We ask because he's a good father. Luke chapter 11 tells us this. Ask God. What good father doesn't want to give good gifts to his children? 
and how much more he ends. Will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You want to know what the greatest thing we can ask for? The Holy Spirit. Peter then moves on to this place called Joppa. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. See the contrast. A man bedridden who lived a meaningless life, a very busy woman in acts of good works and charity who's alive, falls ill, and dies. Now watch that rubric and that framework again. She dies. They call. Now to wrap the loop on John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Right after he says that, Jesus sits at the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps. And he weeps. And I believe his tears are mixing with Martha. And she's going, I just told you I know you can do it. Do it. And as she's waiting for Lazarus' resurrection and restoration, Jesus weeps. And Jesus sits right now, six years later, still weeping with my wife over her mom's death as we wait for Susan's resurrection. He weeps. Hebrews 4 tells us this. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us in our weaknesses. In our weaknesses and when our hearts are struck, his heart is struck. When we shed tears, he weeps with us when we weep. He rejoices with us when we rejoice. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize, but one who sympathizes with us in every way, who understands it even more. And this author of Hebrews says, therefore, because we have a God like that, approach the throne of grace with boldness and confidence. Ask, 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 ask. Wait and cry and know he cries with you and keep asking. Keep persevering. So Tabitha falls dead. People are weeping. They call to Peter. The next section of this. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples hearing Peter was there, they call. They send two men urging, come with us without delay. So Peter rose. He went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping, showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas has made. This is what happens when somebody dies, right? You weep, but then you like remember things. Look at this that they made. Look at this picture. Look about this. How you're expressing how much these people mean to you. Look, 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 and they're crying. They're showing all that stuff that she had done while she was with them. Peter shows up. Peter puts them all outside, gets the body. They're all alone, and he kneels down and he prays. What does Peter know? He's got nothing. What do I have to this? God, they've called me here. What can I do? I can't do squat. You're calling me here? So he gets on his knees and what does he pray? I think he just begins to pray these simple things that Luke 11 talks about. Lord, let your kingdom come and Dorcas health as it will be in heaven. You tell me to ask for the Holy Spirit. Give me the Holy Spirit. The power that you said we'd receive, speak into her body. God, do it. I've got nothing. Do it. I've got nothing. I don't think he's screaming. Maybe he is. Maybe he's I think he's just going, I got nothing, Lord. Do something, please. They called me here. I'm going to look like an idiot. You're going to look like an idiot. Do something. Let your kingdom come in her body as it will be in heaven. Give me the Holy Spirit. And then he gets up and he's like, eh, might as well give it a try. Tabitha, arise. Boom. She opens her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sits up. 
He gave her his hand and he raises her up, which I think means he had some expectations that this was going to happen. He raised her up, then he calls through to the other room to all the saints and the widows as they're crying and they're sharing things, and he hands Tabitha to them. Amazing, compassionate act. But I want to ask this, what is it like in the eyes of Tabitha? Because most of us don't have the moment where we've been lost, see everybody celebrating our lives and grieving the loss of our lives and get to visualize it like Tabitha does. She experiences this real-time resurrection. She's looking, my life was not worthless. What I did of these good works and charity mattered. Look, at, I'm seeing it with my own eyes. And you go, oh, I'd love to have that. But I probably never will because I likely won't die and I won't be raised from the dead. Oh, but you will. The longest passage in the Bible on the resurrection about our resurrection of the body is 1 Corinthians 15. He ends the reality that those who believe will be raised from the dead. And you'd think he'd say, therefore, have hope even in the midst of really bad times. But that's not what he says. Here's what he says. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. You know what that means at the end of a chapter on the resurrection? You're going to have a moment where your eyes open, where you sit up where Christ grabs your hand and pulls you in and it's all going to be open to you and you're going to go, it mattered. Those little things I did that I thought nobody noticed, those moments as a mom that you did it and nobody appreciated it, the moments at work when you did the quiet works of service and you weren't telling your left hand what your right hand was doing, it mattered and it lasted. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. These simple mundane acts of love that we're called to do when we walk out of here matter. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up and we're going to sing <clears throat> a song that was so, so perfect today. And we're going to apply <clears throat> what we learned. And here's how we're going to apply it. We're going to apply it through response. What's the first thing we said? What did they do to Peter? They called upon him. What did Mary and Martha do? They called upon Jesus. Folks, we aren't a church who believes if we're not a church who calls upon God. There are tons of you in this room right now, tons of you. There's no way that there are not massive strongholds. We're going to sing this. There's no one like our God. There's no stronghold he can't break. Whether your stronghold's depression, whether it's physical illness, whether you're bringing forth a family member, whether your issue's anxiety or it's joblessness, whether your problem is you yourself and you're caught up in an addiction, whether your problem is that you feel totally spiritually dead, you don't believe and you believe God's calling you unto life, we're gonna be up here to pray. Come forward and pray. Ask people around you to pray. Lay hands on people. Pray. We're calling upon the name of the Lord. The other thing is we're gonna sing ourselves into our exit, this reality that there's no God like our God. And we are gonna know that these simple acts in the Lord are not in vain. They matter. Hear God speaking in the midst of this. The beauty of Christ calling to you and ask him. Sing this as a declaration of belief and ask God to do things you never thought he would do on your behalf, but you desperately want him to do. Father, I pray right now and we ask you for the Holy Spirit. We pray that your kingdom would come now on earth as it is in heaven. Come, Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.